Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. Is LGBTQ pressure beginning to crack the evangelical house? Dr. Robert Gagnon says absolutely yes. He spoke on the issue during the recent Illinois Family Institute Worldview Conference held at the Village Church of Barrington. Dr. Gagnon is professor of New Testament theology at Houston Baptist University. His book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, powerfully challenges attempts to identify love with affirmation of homosexual practice. During his opening address at the Worldview Conference, Dr. Gagnon gave compelling arguments against policies of appeasement with sexual extremists. I really appreciate the Illinois Family Institute and the work that they do. They are one of the most courageous groups operating in the United States today. I will say that I used to do all my discussions and debates in mainline churches in the United States. That doesn't happen anymore because the factions within the mainline churches that insisted that they were tolerant and diverse and pluralistic, that we should hear all the voices, after they gained the ascendancy in mainline denominations, they don't want to hear all the voices anymore. They only want to hear their side presented. And then a group that claims to be tolerant and diverse and pluralistic ends up narrowing and radicalizing into a hard left movement that no longer can call itself a viable representation of the church to the world. Unfortunately, now most of my discussion is in the evangelical venues. I say unfortunately because it should not even be an issue in evangelical venues, but it is. And I didn't look up, I was thinking of looking up polls uh, ahead of time and what percentage of young people now endorse evangelically identified young people endorse gay marriage, but I said, you know, why bother? We all know it's true that those numbers are radically increasing, and that is because of daily indoctrination that takes place on the part of culture. Are any of you old enough here to remember Patty Hearst? I'm old enough to remember that, I'll confess. She was sort of a victim with the Simeonese kidnapped by the, quote, Simeonese Liberation Army, heiress to the great Hearst fortune. And uh, you'll remember at some point she helped them to rob a bank (laughs) carrying a machine gun or some other rapid fire weapon. She was afflicted by what we call the Stockholm Syndrome, which is that after a while, when you're held in captivity for a long time by your captors, you begin to adopt the mindset of your captors. And that's pretty pretty much what's happening with the younger generation. Because they get a steady diet of the LGBTQ agenda forced on them, because they become, get mocked and humiliated and marginalized if they don't go along with it, they now are trying to either put their heads in the sand or even change their view on the subject, at least outwardly. They're under enormous pressure Those of us who are old enough to remember a day when that didn't happen, or at least wasn't happening to that extent, shake our heads at what we see because we recognize 
You think you're going to give a little and then they'll leave you alone? It gets even worse. If they smell blood in the water, like piranhas, they go after you with an even greater intensity and fervor. So what I want to talk a little bit more about is how we see some cracks already beginning to develop in evangelicalism. And here now I'm not talking about the young, I'm talking about the leadership within evangelicalism. I'll just mention a few cases in point. And I'm not trying to argue when I say this, the people that I will be identifying here or the groups that I'm identifying, that they're actually supporting overtly homosexual unions and transgenderism, but they manifest the beginning stages of that slide or transition, which I saw as I I was actually, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, little background. Suddenly, uh, when I became a, I was a nominal Roman Catholic, not that a Roman Catholic can't be a Christian, I wasn't. And at the age of 17, the gospel was shared to me in a way that I could identify with a young woman who I'd been trying to date for four years. And uh, although it didn't take immediately, eventually over time as I began reading the gospels on my own, I realized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life and privately committed my life to him in my bedroom. And then I had to confess to my girlfriend that I had been deceiving her all along into thinking that I was a Christian, even though I wasn't. Which is why now that my daughters are of dating age, I need to join the National Rifle Association. (laughs) Then I became involved in a non-denominational evangelical charismatic fellowship while I was at college, then an American Baptist church and the vineyard while I was in uh, graduate school. And when I came to Pittsburgh, because it's the densest group of Presbyterians in the country, no double entendre intended, uh, we joined the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. And over the years, I saw how this evolves. It starts with, again, hearing all the voices. We want to be able to agree to disagree on this issue. And eventually, it resolves into, as I noted earlier, not hearing anybody but themselves. Uh, Usually it involves very imbalanced panel discussions, testimonies, scholarly contributions, all designed to serve their own ultimate purpose. And it also starts with a series of theological arguments that turn out to be bad arguments, some of which we'll now note. Even just recently in the magazine Christianity Today, I don't know if you noticed, there was an article on polyamory partly written by Preston Sprinkle, who heads up a group, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. I know Preston. Preston's a good guy. I like him. Uh, He is not for proving homosexual unions or transgenderism. But I think some of his views begin to move toward that transitional moment. In this particular article on polyamory, he argued three things. By the way, if you don't know what polyamory is, bless your heart. Uh, Polyamory is a sort of modern version of polygamy. Any number of sex partners allowable concurrently in a committed relationship, marriage or otherwise. And, uh, but unlike traditional polygamy, it could involve a woman and many husbands, or it could involve bisexuality within the relationship, having sex with both male and female. In talking about polyamory, thankfully they were against it. He and his co-author, Branson Parler, but they made three arguments which I thought were problematic. One, they insisted that Christians make clear the positive dimensions of polyamory, 
which I thought is a little bit bizarre, that those who would come to your church in a polyamorous relationship, you should be able to praise them for their interest in deep relationships, care for others, hospitality, and community. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And while soft-pedaling polyamory, they reserve their harshest warning for, quote, churches that idolize monogamous marriage and the nuclear family. They didn't use the word idolize for polyamory. I thought that was fairly curious. And thirdly, they criticized pastors for, quote, preaching against polyamory directly from the pulpit. They also uh, criticized preaching directly from the pulpit against homosexual practice and transgenderism. Now, they did recommend that pastors make um, oblique cases for the opposite, but you really have to do both. When Paul dealt with the case of the incestuous man at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, he didn't just make a positive case for a non-kinship-related marriage. He strongly criticized the incest as outrageous and not representative in any way, shape, or form of what could be allowable in the body of Christ because it violated an irreducible minimum of sexual ethics. And turning it into a marriage, uh, Paul didn't, for example, say, gee, let me commend you for the positive aspects of incest. I'm glad that you really care for your, your uh, stepmother in this episode, and uh, you just took it a little bit too far, but it's basically as a positive starting point. No. Uh, to do so undermines the resistance to a form of egregious sexual immorality from the get-go. Now, since Prince Preston Sprinkle has issued a response in which he says, well, he left out the word just, not just preach directly against these things, but preach positively for it. But that's sort of like saying, well, uh, when I said that I'm, that I'm for gay marriage, I just accidentally left out the word not. Uh, that I'm not for gay marriage. Well, you know, that's a big word to leave out. Uh, don't blame others for misunderstanding what's going on at that point. Then we have developments taking place in a movement called Revoice and the Spiritual Friendship Movement. Again, I want to commend them very much. This is a group of mostly young persons who experience same-sex attractions and who remain in a celibate, sexually abstinent life. And that's all extraordinarily commendable. And I'm not arguing that they're promoting homosexual practice or transgenderism, but again, I can see certain cracks developing in the edifice. For example, they're constantly celebrating the benefits of being gay, quote unquote, rather than addressing the false narrative that lies behind homosexual desire. Every sinful desire to do something that God expressly forbids generally has behind it a false narrative that tells you that if you do X, whatever the immoral desire is, you will experience some great benefit. That's why the scripture tells us to repeatedly renew our minds in accordance with the core gospel. And in renewing our minds, we attack that false narrative and expose it for the lie that it is. If you have a particular problem with greed, why would that be? Because underlying that problem is a false narrative that having more material possessions and more material security will give you what you crave most in life. When in fact, what you really need 
is more Jesus. And it's just a, it's an idolatry. It's a God substitute for what we actually need. There is a false narrative behind homosexual attractions. When you think about the nature of homosexual attractions, think about the unusual character of being erotically attracted by what you already have. Men being erotically aroused by essential masculinity in terms of anatomy, in psychology, in physiology. There's something different about that from a heterosexual desire. Not that all heterosexual desire is good. There are lots of bad forms of heterosexual relationships, as we all know. But heterosexual desire is not intrinsically disordered. Homosexual desire is. There is a sexual spectrum consisting, according to God, of two halves, male and female. That's the way that God made us, according to Genesis 1.27. That's an intentional design on God's part to create two sexes that are mutually compatible and complementary to each other on the level of anatomy, physiology, and psychology, so that the extremes of each sex are moderated and the gaps in the sexual self are filled, right? I'll make a radical statement here. Men and women are different. What a weird group you are. Let us celebrate, viva la difference, right? You know, men and women need each other. Um, if they're going to engage in a sexual relationship, your true sexual counterpart or complement uh, is not your own sex, but is the other sex that God created, right? Now, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but occasionally men may sit in front of a TV watching a football game, grunt from time to time, and thinking they're having deep fellowship with one another. And for some strange reason, their wives may not think that that is true. Go figure. On the other hand, some women uh, may think that, you know, leaving your socks by the bedside uh, is a cardinal sin. <laughs> it's in the engagement of the two and the differences between two sexes that we learn to moderate the extremes and fill in the gaps. And when you don't have two persons of the two halves of the sexual spectrum, you're not forming a holistic sexual union involving the totality of that spectrum in which I'll add, incidentally, since we just talked about polyamory, where a third party is neither necessary or desirable because you've already brought together the totality of that spectrum in male and female. Uh, when you don't have that, what you do is exponentially increase the excesses of the individual sex. You're not moderating the extremes and you're not filling in the gaps. Now, when I became attracted to the person that would eventually become my wife, that was the person who shared the gospel with me in high school. She's my wife. My best man, Bruce McKenzie, is actually here at my wedding. Thank you, Bruce, for coming. Good to see you here. Anyway, the point where I want to go is if you are erotically aroused by somebody of the same sex, uh, in effect, you are regarding your sex as only half intact in relation to your own sex. In other words, two half males become a whole male. Two half females become a whole female because of the sense of gender identity incompletion in yourself. As one therapist put it when he was talking to a client who addressing the issue of same-sex attractions and addressing the false narrative behind those attractions, he said, he asked him, when was it that you first felt conscious erotic desire for another male? And he said he was a young man in maybe early adolescence and 
he was in a Y, YMCA, and he was in a, a group shower thing, and a naked man came in that appeared to be handsome, and he said, wow. And the therapist said, fill out that thought. What do you mean by wow? And he said, wow, I wish I was him. And that's essentially what a same-sex erotic relationship is about, wishing that one's sex could be complemented or completed by another person of one's own sex because of a sense of something lacking. There's a certain degree of sexual self-deception involved there, perhaps a little bit of sexual narcissism also, but mostly sexual self-deception, thinking because of whatever developmental circumstances in life, that man's masculinity or that woman's femininity is not wholly intact. This is not to be mocked, the person is not to be humiliated for it, the person is to be helped, but the help does not come by regularizing that misperception in a committed relationship with a person of the same sex. It's going to come from developing close, intimate, but non-sexual, non-erotic relationships with a person of the same sex who can validate their biological sex as being whole and intact. And the big problem I have with the spiritual friendship group and the revoice group is they don't really address that false narrative, but rather extol the benefits of being gay. They're gay Christians. Most men here probably didn't lose all desires for women other than their spouse the moment that they became a Christian, I'm just guessing. I'm revealing actually a state secret here for which I will be drummed out of the men's society. But I would never identify myself or want you to identify yourself as a polyamorous Christian because that's giving too much play to self-identity with a sinful impulse that should not characterize who we are. Those things are to be put to death on a regular basis. It's why Jesus defined discipleship as taking up your cross, losing your life, denying yourself, and following me. That's a total home makeover. It's not a partial reform of your life. Jesus is asking for death. To that, anything, any innate impulse oriented to doing things that does not accord with God's will. Why would we then want to call ourselves, if we experience same-sex attractions, a gay Christian? Why would we want to identify ourselves as part of a sexual minority? I mean, there are a lot more sexual minorities if that's the nomenclature you want to use. Those who engage in incest are sexual minorities. Those who engage in sex with children are sexual minorities. Those who engage in sex with animals are sexual minorities. My point is not to say that homosexual practice is as bad as each of these. We'd have to take those things on a case-by-case basis, but rather to say that you're using terminology that doesn't differentiate between those who enter into sinful behavior and those who don't. So it's inappropriate nomenclature, and it obscures the question of sin. They tend to treat the sin of the church against homosexual persons. Yes, the church has made mistakes, has not been as loving as it should be for persons who experience same-sex attractions, not been as much of a help as it should be. I grant all of that. But they tend to treat that as a far greater problem than the actual sin of homosexual practice itself. And that's why none of them signed the Nashville Statement, which was a great statement that said that if you promote homosexual practice or transgenderism, that is heresy in the church. And as I've said before, though I can think of ways that I would amend certain elements or make additions or slight corrections, for that statement alone, it should have been signed by everybody. 
But because it didn't have a long drawn out apology of how, the bad the ch how bad the church has been to persons who engage in homosexual practice, they refused to sign. Even though I don't know of any other creedal formulation or a faith belief statement of the church that requires that confession, right? In order for us to reject Gnosticism, we first have to confess how bad we've been to the Gnostics. That isn't the way the church ever operated, okay? You have to be able to take a clear stand. And if you can't take a clear stand against immorality, then I would suggest we have a crack in the edifice. They tend to support state promotion of homosexual practice and erosion of religious liberties by supporting gender identity laws and sexual orientation laws. And some, when the gay marriage decision was rendered by the Supreme Court, like me, you, you're probably still scratching your head, wondering where possibly in the Constitution there was some sort of tacit or direct approval for gay marriage. I'm still looking for it to this day. Uh, but some of them were actually thinking about the positive benefits for it and even saying, I get weepy chills over thinking that now my gay friends can now get married. That's problematic. There are problems in insisting that homosexual desire cannot and should not be changed. Uh, they reject any thought of developmental influences on homosexual attraction, and they discourage any same-sex attracted Christian from seeking help. The idea of sexual orientation change is viewed by them as a sort of virtual betrayal of the benefits of being gay and a threat to those who have not experienced any orientation change. Now, I'm not saying that a person has to experience sexual orientation change in order to be a, a great, wonderful Christian. There are lots of innate desires that we all have that have not been markedly changed by becoming a Christian. But nevertheless, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility of therapeutic help for persons who experience desires that are not godly, at least for no other reason than to address that false narrative that we discussed earlier. They tend to promote same-sex relationships that look a lot like marriage, only minus the sex. They talk about the need to establish a lifelong commitment to one person of the same sex who they now view as a significant other. That sounds to me like marriage, minus the sex. Bruce and I are great friends. We even say that we love each other on the phone. Our friendship goes back to our college days, which was roughly around the time of the invention of the printing press. But I've never said to Bruce, let's ritualize this in a lifelong committed union between you and I, where I regard you as my significant other. Bruce would probably raise an eyebrow and say, really, Rob? Let's talk about that. And finally, they seem to have more partnership or Christian koinonia with homosexually active pretend Christians than with Christians who have come out of the homosexual lifestyle. So all those seven elements seem to me, although again, they're not supporting homosexual unions per se, seem to me to introduce certain cracks in the edifice. Dr. Robert Gagnon will continue with his opening address at the Illinois Family Institute's 2020 Worldview Conference after this. While Christians observe the National Day of Prayer, we're asking God for His protection and an end to the pandemic. We pray that we will soon be able to safely worship and fellowship in our churches and that we can return to work to help provide for our families and churches. 
We pray that our elected leaders will make wise decisions and will not exceed their authority and use the pandemic for political gain. We pray that safety will not become code for control, censorship, and the loss of liberties. But even now, remember to give thanks to God for His many blessings. Ask Him to guide us through the hardships and that we will find ways to use them for His glory. And let's make every day, in good times and bad, a national day of prayer. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. During this edition, we're highlighting Dr. Robert Gagnon's opening address at the 2020 IFI Worldview Conference. During this segment, he takes issue in strong terms with the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. He condemns pronoun hospitality and spells out the dangers of the Equality Act. Let me move on to somebody else of high stature. That is J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has a number of views which I think, really? That can't be supported from Scripture. And yet he's the president of what you would think is the most conservative of the major denominations in the country today. For example, he has argued that all sins are equally depraved in God's eyes. Really? Taking home a company pen is as bad as Hitler murdering six million Jews? I don't think so. And actually, nobody believes that. We also believe that different sexual offenses have different degrees of severity. For example, we may have and should have, in agreement with Jesus, some problem with a revolving door of divorce and remarriage for any cause, right? But our culture still permits that legally, but we don't yet, although we will eventually, we don't yet permit multiple concurrent polygamy or polyamory at the present. Why? Because we know that that's worse. Is there anyone that doesn't know that that's worse? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Incest is worse still. And worse than that, even among consensual sexual relationships is homosexual practice. And then, in a somewhat of a self-contradiction, although he says that all sins are equally depraved in God's eyes, he then says that quite a few other sins are more egregious in God's eyes than homosexual practice. Well, those two statements are inconsistent. <laughs> Typically, one would argue inconsistently if you're not actually basing your view in Scripture. And he would compare homosexual practice, as he has, for example, to a child being disobedient to a parent. Really? I mean, my girls, uh, who, bless their hearts, are now into college and past college, when they were growing up, you know, sometimes they actually did things wrong, I'll confess. They're the best children anybody ever had, I know that, but even I've discovered particularly when they were, my younger daughter was growing up and the Barbie wars developed between my two daughters, uh, that they can have sin, even um, among themselves, right? All sin is not equal. We presumably wouldn't argue that way about a man-mother case of consensual incest in other forms. He says we have to love our gay neighbor more, love our gay neighbor more than we love our position on sexual morality. Really, I didn't know it was a zero-sum game. I didn't know that the more you emphasize the truth, the less love you have. I saw Jesus integrating love and truth. In fact, you can't truly love somebody unless your love is in accordance with the truth, because otherwise you may be approving something that puts that person at high risk of being excluded from the kingdom of God, and then that can't be love. 
By definition, when Paul talked about love in the hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13, he says that love rejoices in the truth, and it does. It's not a zero-sum game, and no president of the Southern Baptist Convention should be making those two things into an either-or, loving your gay neighbor or loving your position on sexual morality. I certainly can't think of Jesus ever saying anything even remotely close to that. I actually see Jesus reaching out to sexual offenders even as he intensifies God's ethical demand in the area of sex. He doesn't reduce it, he intensifies it. So apparently Jesus did not see those two elements as inconsistent. He also says that God doesn't send people to hell for homosexual conduct. Really, that will be news to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, because he includes them among those who will not enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now it is true, yes, the big thing you wanna deal with is first you have to believe in Jesus. But Paul is addressing those remarks even to those who believe in Jesus, that you, if you persist in serial unrepentant sin of an egregious sort, then you are not exercising the kind of faith that leads to your justification. It's become more an intellectual assent to the truth than it has actually a holistic life reorientation in accordance with the gospel. He insists that evangelicals should be among the chief advocates against discrimination against the gay and lesbian community in our society. Now, I'm not, talk, I'm not saying we should actively discriminate against people, but on the other hand, it's fairly naive if you're going to end up supporting gender identity and sexual orientation laws, you are the one who will be discriminated against. You and your children, in every facet of your life, from cradle to grave, and a society isn't gonna stop at just an even keel on the position. You will be made to agree. And if you don't agree, you'll be treated legally, statutory, in a statutory manner, as the moral equivalent and legal equivalent of a virulent racist, with all the attenuation of your civil and religious liberties following. So that's really not a helpful statement to make unless it's very significantly qualified. He says that it's great if evangelicals vote for the candidate of the infanticide, genderqueer, and mandatory speech party. Now, he didn't use those terms for that party. I'm just gonna see if you can guess which party I'm talking about. Okay, I don't think that that's great. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out in what sense do you actually value natural marriage, the integrity of your biology, of your sex given to you biologically before birth? To what extent do you value the lives of the unborn? To what extent do you value free speech and religious freedom? To what extent do you value jurists, judges in the courts who are not going to amend the Constitution under the guise of interpretation and thereby bypass the process specified in the Constitution itself for its own amendment? I don't think it's great. I think it's a significant problem. And then he go, has gone even further recently in commending what he calls as pronoun hospitality. Pronoun hospitality means that if a man comes dressed up as a woman in your church and identifies as a woman, but it's pretty clear when you're looking at the individual that this is a biological man, you should, in your church, use pronoun hospitality and that is referred to the person by the pronoun that he wants to be referred to by, in this instance, a female pronoun, and by the feminine name that he goes by. 
in the church. Not where you're being compelled to do so in the workplace or you lose your job. I can understand the angst that a Christian would have over that matter because they have a family to feed. But in the church, the pastor himself, can you imagine how that would violate the conscience of the weak in the church who might be tempted to approve of transgender relationships because of the forced indoctrination they've been having in the school system from kindergarten on up? And see here, even the pastor doesn't think it's such a big deal because he's calling the man by feminine pronouns and a female name. I never thought I would ever hear any Southern Baptist pastor say that, let alone the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and not receive significant pushback within the denomination for saying so. Why should I have to be the one to say that? They should be cleaning their own house from the top Now he does say, once you get to know the person better, maybe you can deal with those issues and, you know, talk about the fact that, okay, really you're not a woman, you are actually a man. But you should not be doing something in the church that will cause many other believers to stumble to their ruin. And you should not be aiding and abetting the self-deception of that individual who comes to your church and thereby contribute to their exclusion from the kingdom of God because you're essentially sending them a message that this is no big deal to us. When in fact, to me it's extraordinary looking at scripture. To look at scripture, would you see what scripture's attitude to that is? We think again what the problem with homosexual practice is. Homosexual practice is a half denial of your biological sex, needing to be supplemented through union with another person of the same sex. Two half males become a whole male, that sort of thing. But transgenderism, so-called, of course, it's all cosmetic surgery. There's no actual change of the individual from one sex, biological sex, to another. Transgenderism is a radical denial completely of your gender, stamped by God on your being. In effect, it's a massive denial of the creator and the creator's work. And if anyone wants to argue that any protagonist in scripture, whether that be Jesus or any of the prophets or any of those associated with the legal material in the Old Testament or the apostolic witness to Jesus in the New Testament, if anyone wants to argue that any such figure would have ever, apart from say derision, call a man a woman or identify a man with feminine pronouns, I would say crack your Bible open because that would have been regarded as the height of sacrilege. For God, that was an abhorrent practice. And by that, God means something I detest, I hate, because it devalues the individual engaged in that practice. So we cannot treat this as a minor matter, and it is no pronoun hospitality to refer to somebody by a self-identity that God himself regards as supremely offensive. And one last thing I wanna talk about here briefly, and that is the question about voting and what matters to people when they vote. More and more, I hear lots of other reasons that we should vote because of the environment, or we should vote because we need more illegal immigrants, or whatever the case may be. I don't know what your position is on those issues. I can only tell you that there's no radical sea change difference coming regardless of what candidate gets elected president over those issues, okay? 
We're still spending enormous amounts of money in the welfare state that has not gone down significantly. The poor are still getting all the aid that they got previously. Uh, legal immigration rates are still what they were in the Obama administration, and so naturalization rates, and so forth. Where there is going to be radical change, increasingly, is going to be over the LGBTQ issue first, and over abortion second. And related to those, of course, is religious freedom and free speech, and the nature of the, the judiciary. Those are the issues over which radical sea change developments will take place, and those should be the major issues over that make the determination of who you're going to vote for. Now, just with regard to the so-called Equality Act, which the Democrats made first priority business when they gained control of the House, and for which there is already 46 co-sponsors, in addition to the sponsor, that makes 47, in the Senate. That's how close it already is in the Senate, okay? And uh, so we need every bulwark to prevent that from getting passed. Why? What's so problematic about the Equality Act, which I think is better worded as Get the Homophobic and Transphobic Bigot Act? That's you. Right off the get-go with regard to that bill is it says you cannot use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to get out of this. Okay, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is basically gutted. And this puts in civil rights categories sexual orientation and gender identity. You know what gender identity is, right? That's the euphemism for transgenderism. Here's some of the things that would happen as a result of that bill get, getting passed. First of all, it would put men who claim a female gender identity in every woman's restroom, locker room, and dressing room in the nation. Every woman's shelter, every woman's prison, every woman's sports. And you will not be able to stop it. It will lead to a national mandatory indoctrination by all the public schools and non-religious private schools into, L into the LGBTQ radical agenda. That includes mandatory drag queen story hours for the very youngest of children in schooling. That includes mandatory assemblies and classroom instruction that rail against hateful, ignorant bigots like yourself. It will be used to promote homosexual practice and transgender identity at the very earliest ages. No teacher or administrator will be able to stop a boy from entering a girl's bathroom for fear that in doing so, that boy might identify as a girl. Because this bill does not require for transgenderism that there be any outward change in the person's appearance. It will result in national mandatory speech laws. In New York, we already have such laws with regard to transgenderism that will fine a person who, quote, misgenders a transgender person with up to a quarter of a million dollars in fines. It will punish all persons who own a small business with massive fines and threat of imprisonment who do not want to be forced to use their talents to promote actively and directly homosexual intercourse and transgenderism. It will give the federal government the power to withhold money from any state that does not rigorously promote that agenda. It will lead to the removal of federal funding and ultimately accreditation from every religious school and college that does not promote sexual orientation and gender identity differences. 
And you know what that happens if a religious school, a religious college or university loses ultimately not only the research funds for science stuff or federal funding for student loans, but also ultimately loses accreditation, what do you think is going to happen to that school? It goes belly up. In other words, this bill would effectively destroy Christian education in the United States. And yet we actually have Christian educators in schools, including in places like Wheaton, that think that the worst thing that could face us is to have Donald Trump reelected. And I'm thinking, you even realize you're gonna end up losing your job? I know what it is to lose a job. Not a pretty thing, not a happy story. It will give the state the power to remove your own children from your own home and prosecute you for child abuse if you do not affirm your child's transgender, transgender wishes to be called by the name or pronouns at odd with their, odds with their biological sex. Can you imagine the state taking your children out of your home? It will ban any sexual orientation change therapy or indeed any attempt to deter people from engaging in homosexual practice or transgender change. It will force all businesses and public universities to implement sexual orientation and gender identity affirmative action hiring programs. It's not just enough to give equal grounds. Affirmative action hiring, it's actually a plus. Right now, in the Ivy League schools, it's a plus for your application if you identify as LGBTQ. Not even won't do you harm, it will actually do you good to put that in. Employees will be required to report to human resources, employers rather, any employees who are overheard speaking negatively, well, fellow employees as well, who are overheard speaking negatively about gay marriage, homosexuality, or transgenderism. You will be reported to HR and dealt with accordingly. Even if you only post on social media outside of the workplace, you will be so reported for creating an unsafe environment in the workplace. It will force doctors and nurses, even at Catholic hospitals, to perform, quote, sex reassignment surgery, even to minors. It will force health and health professionals who attempt to warn youth and adults about the damaging effect of puberty blockers or transgender surgeries will be fired. It will put churches in jeopardy of losing their tax-exempt status. See Beto O'Rourke for that. By the way, in that Democratic primary where he said that any church that does not promote homosexual practice and transgenderism should lose its tax-exempt status, no other Democrat contender rebuked him. They just don't have the guts to say what they want to do because they still feel they need to get elected. Beto found out you can't get elected and say that view overtly. Uh, they just hold it secretly at this particular point in time. And they will make church buildings accessible for functions promoting homosexuality, homosexuality and transgenderism, including gay marriage, if you allow your building to be used for anything other than strictly church purposes. It will require all charities and adoption agencies not to practice sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination in their hiring and in their distribution of services. It will compel law enforcement agencies, courts, and medical research studies to categorize transgender persons by their pretend sex. It will exclude from all political, corporate, academic, professional, and judicial hiring and appointments. Have I given enough elements there? Anyone who is not a cheerleader for all things gay and transgender. 
Commitment to treat people equally in the performance of one's duties will not be enough. One must declare unequivocal support for the LGBTQ agenda and reject any association with and any donations to any churches or parachurch organizations, schools, charities, clubs, and social outreach programs that do not support that agenda. If they find in your background that you did, even 10, 15 years ago, that will be grounds of not being hired or being fired. Now, there's more, but I think that's enough. And people tell me this is not the big issue that we now need to address in our voting. When you say that, you either don't know what you're talking about, or you yourself have come to a view about homosexual practice and transgenderism, which does not reflect the biblical viewpoint of the matter. These elements indicate cracks in the evangelical church, and they indicate a necessity on the part of pastors to preach regularly about the importance of sexual purity, because the last bulwark to educate people in the United States over these issues is the church. And if the church will not do it, then nobody will. I will grant you that you run a risk for doing so, but I will also tell you there's never, will never be a better time in the future than now to do it, because it will only get worse. So everybody, the old scriptural adage, metaphor, gird up your loins and prepare for battle. Thank you. Dr. Robert Gagnon, during the recent Illinois Family Institute Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Please be in prayer during the global pandemic and remember to pray for and support the ongoing work of the Illinois Family Institute, illinoisfamily.org. All donations are tax deductible. Also, tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, stay safe and God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize.